J.C. Ryle once said that if you don't bother the world, the world will most likely not bother you. But if you seek to do the world any spiritual good, then the world will hate you just as it hated Christ Jesus. The American culture that we live in, as a matter of fact, the, the broader Western culture of which we are a part, within this culture, Christianity is becoming immoral. It's becoming immoral on the American conscience, on the Western conscience, as we say out loud that people are not inherently good. As we say out loud that there must be, there is a, an absolute and definitive truth, and you must make decisive choices about it. And in an atmosphere under an umbrella of tolerance, this gospel is becoming increasingly offensive, it's becoming increasingly immoral, so much so that. We are within a generation now in which your children will sit in college and classes, perhaps even in their high school, which they will be told, if you believe that people not like you, people who don't believe what you believe are going to hell, you are a hateful person, a bigot. Jesus told us this was coming. Jesus told us this would be the life of a disciple. In fact, it has been the lives of disciples since the very beginning from the early church. Ever since Jesus was here, resurrected and sent the Spirit, this has been true of Christians. And so this morning in Matthew chapter 10, we see Jesus preparing us. Preparing his disciples that day, preparing his disciples this day to encounter such a culture as ours. To encounter such opposition as we will face. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? We will be in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. Matthew 10, verse 26, God's word says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both, both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Matthew chapter 10 is really an extraordinary chapter in the gospel of Matthew. And it's extraordinary because we begin to see, we see this, this shift in tone for Jesus. In the first few chapters, Jesus is really focused on the here and now. Even the first part, the first 15 verses of chapter 10, Jesus is preparing his disciples to go and to reach the now, right? To go and to reach the lost sheep of Israel. But in verse 16, we begin to see a shift. And so we're allowed to eavesdrop, to sit in on an intimate conversation between Jesus and his disciples in what life is going to be like, not just now, but from now on. 
See, I believe Jesus particularly has in mind, beginning in verse 16, the the post-resurrection days, the post-Pentecost days, after Jesus has ascended, after the Spirit has descended, how life will look like in the lives of a believer. And so what we could take these verses to be is we could take them as being directly applicable to every Christian that has come and lived post-resurrection or post-ascension. And that's us. So the unique thing about Matthew chapter 10 is it requires very little interpretation. We can, in fact, take exactly what Jesus has said here to the T and apply it directly to our own lives as 21st century Christians. We're going to see this lived out in the book of Acts, especially beginning in about chapter 4. But what we should understand about the book of Acts is that the book of Acts is open-ended. Today, we are in Acts chapter 2015. Acts is still taking place. This is still being fulfilled. Now, what Jesus says in verse 26 is borderline crazy. Jesus says, so have no fear of them. Now, think about what Jesus has just said. What has Jesus just talked about? We talked about this last week. Jesus has just told them that you are going to be beaten and scourged for my name. That people are going to take you and they're going to tie you to a post and they're going to lash you. And they're going to take the hide off your back. You're going to be unrecognizable. Jesus has just told them that you are going to be hated because I am hated. And a a servant is not greater than his master. A a student is not greater than his teacher. Jesus has told them that your your parents are going to turn you over for your life because of me. Your children are going to turn you over for your life because you love me. Your brother is going to betray you. Your sister is going to betray you. Jesus has made no bones about it. Hard days are ahead for his disciples. But then we get to verse 26. And in light of all of that, what does he say? So, don't be afraid. So don't be afraid. Now, let me ask you, what sane person can hear the things that Jesus has just said and not be afraid? What sane, level-headed, rational person can hear the things that Jesus has just laid out as experiences that will happen and think, okay, I won't be afraid then. Jesus said don't be afraid, I won't be afraid. See, what Jesus is telling them here is Jesus is telling them, don't be intimidated into unfaithfulness. Jesus is saying here, don't be, see all of the threats that are coming and all of the hardships that are coming and all the sorrows that are coming and allow that to intimidate you into unfaithfulness. Allow that to intimidate you into not following me the way that you have resolved to follow me already. You see, what Jesus is talking about here is Jesus is talking about spiritual warfare. Notice how he, he ends the second half of verse 20. Jesus says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known, right? Well, so what he's saying here is that in the end, you're not going to be able to stay quiet anyway. You're not going to be able to stay underneath the surface of the earth. You're not going to be able to, to stay back in the shadows and kind of just walk through life. No, all of this is going to be revealed. But as this is being revealed, as this is coming to bear, as my mission is fulfilled and I return for you, what you are going to see is that you will be vindicated. All of this is going to be revealed. All of this is going to come out into the light. What is hidden will be made plain. Jesus is talking about spiritual warfare. 
So how is it that any sane person can hear the things that Jesus has just laid out and say, I will still go, I will still sign up, I am not going to be intimidated into unfaithfulness? It's the same reason anybody goes to war. It's the same reason any country enters into war. Is the fear of the consequences of inaction are greater than the consequences of action. Nobody wants to go to war. No country desires to enter into war. It's horrible. There are casualties in war. There are injuries in war. There is bloodshed in war. It is not glorious. It is not good. But we go to war, don't we? We go to war because we know the consequences of evil dictators committing human atrocities across the globe are far greater than if we don't go. That the consequences of evil being able to reign and evil being able to run amok are far greater than the casualties, no matter how valuable those lives are. We go to war because we understand that the consequences of inaction are greater than the consequences of action. It's the truth for Christians too. This is why we go into the war. This is why we willingly embrace this mission of sorrow. That's why we willingly take on this cross of Jesus for ourselves. Back last February, we had um, one of my heroes, one of the heroes of our pastors, in fact, um, here he preached at our, our Wild Game Supper, Dr. Paige Patterson. Dr. Paige Patterson, um, if you're not aware of who he is, Dr. Paige Patterson is one of the most foremost Southern Baptists of the last 50 to 100 years. The Southern Baptist Convention had drifted into liberalism, and so people were now holding up the Bible and saying, well, you really can't trust this. The, the Jonah may or may not have been swallowed by a fish. Jesus may or may not have walked on water. The miracles may or may not have happened. But that's not really important because the, the practice is still in there. The morality is still in there. And as this was beginning to, to infiltrate the Southern Baptist Convention, men, particularly Paige Patterson and Paul Pressler, stood up and said, this cannot be. This cannot be. And so they began to, to initiate what is called now the conservative resurgence that lasted the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s as they began to restore the fidelity and sufficiency and reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible in our churches. There were darts thrown at them. There were arrows fired at them. And so one of the, one of the great joys last February is after we had the Wild Game Supper, we, our pastors got to go out for coffee with Dr. Patterson, and we're sitting at this table, and, I mean, we're all just hanging on every word that he's saying because he, he literally is a hero to us, and, the, and he's just this larger-than-life figure, and the, he says every, he's just a great storyteller. He's telling stories and telling stories and telling stories, and... We get to the conservative resurgence, and he begins to talk about it and, and, and the difficulty and the moments of weakness in there. And, and we asked him, you know, was there ever a moment when you just kind of just questioned if all of this was worth it? And Dr. Patterson said that one day he, was, he drove his little girl to school. She was in elementary school, and he drove her to school, and he, he got out. She, she went out, and he was on his way to work. He said and while he was on his way to work, his phone rang. And a man on the other side of it told, described to him exactly where his little girl was, exactly what she was wearing, and exactly what, he, what she was doing. And told him that if he didn't put down the fight, he would lose his little girl. So we asked him, Dr. Patterson, how in the world did you keep going? 
And he said, I didn't want to have to look at my grandchildren in the eye one day and explain to them why I didn't do anything. The costs were high. The cost of action, the consequences of action were high. But the cost and consequences of inaction were far higher and far greater. And so Dr. Patterson resolved that this was a mission worth giving life for. This was a mission worth giving family for. Brothers and sisters, the gospel that we have been called into is worth our lives. The gospel that we have been called into is worth our sorrow. If your family endeavors and resolves to live out the mission of Jesus Christ, there will be gospel shrapnel. There will be days of sorrow. There will be days in which you miss your, your kids that are on the mission field. There will be days in which you will be openly mocked as the religious fringe. There will be days in which it will be difficult, but I am telling you, brothers and sisters, the consequences of inaction are far greater than the consequences of action. How will the children in our elementary school know unless preachers go there? How will the people in our communities know the gospel and know that they can be delivered forever unless we go there? How will they know there is a different way and a better way and a narrow life unless we live that path in front of them? Gospel shrapnel will come. Consequences will come. Hardship will come. But brothers and sisters, it is worth our lives. You've got to ask yourself this morning, what consequence can you live with? What consequence can you live with? Can you live with the consequence of discomfort? Can you live with the consequence of unpopularity? Can you live with the consequence of disapproval of all of the other parents at your children's school in Little League Park? Or can you live with the consequences of lostness and unfaithfulness, and as Jesus tells us at the end of our passage this morning, forever condemnation from him? What consequence can you live with? And so Jesus tells us as his disciples... Understanding the nature of his mission, understanding the nature of the gospel and the glory of his kingdom that is to be revealed. That we are to go and we are to, what we have heard in the dark, go out and, and speak it in the light. What we have heard whispered to us, we go from the rooftops and proclaim it and preach it. In other words, speak it, speak it clearly as though it's under a light. Speak it openly as though it's from a rooftop. That is that we are people who cannot live and accomplish this mission in hiding. The church cannot be undercover. This is not a covert operation. We live lives openly to, for God's glory. Openly faithful. Openly set apart. Openly countercultural. We live lives that are radical to the people around us. We proclaim it from the housetops. We proclaim it in the light. Have you ever considered that we're not on defense? You ever considered that? We're in a spiritual war, yes, but we're not on defense. We, the church does not have a defensive posture in spiritual battle. Think about the language of the Bible. What does the Bible say? It says that the kingdom is coming, right? The kingdom is coming. It says the, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it, right? It says that we are to go to the nations, making disciples of all nations, right? We're, we're going out. That is that we are pressing deeper and deeper and deeper into, into enemy territory. 
We are on defense. We're on offense, brothers and sisters. We are striking against the gates of hell. We are striking against the enemy. We are striking. We are on offense, pressing deeper and deeper and deeper, claiming land for God's glory, claiming souls for Christ's kingdom. We are pressing on and moving in, openly proclaiming the gospel from the housetops, openly speaking it in the light. You see, this is the natural progression of discipleship. You realize that? This is what discipleship always looks like in the New Testament. There is nowhere in the New Testament that says that discipleship and, and faithful Christian life is to come to church once a week, to sing some songs, hear a sermon, go eat lunch, and go home and not think about it anymore. Throughout the, throughout the New Testament, the disciples are being trained for something. They're being trained for battle. That's what Jesus is telling them in Matthew 10. Now it's time to take your training and put it into practice. Now it's time to take all the things that I've taught you and to live them out. Discipleship always happens this way. We don't come, as, we, as I said earlier, we don't come so that our, our heads will become fuller, right? We don't come so that the Bible can be poured into our heads so that we will have a deeper theology or a, or a bigger theology or a bigger vocabulary so that we can go home with more knowledge. No, we fill up our minds so that our minds might infiltrate our hearts and so that our, our hearts will be filled with worship and our lives will be filled with passion that drives us to the ends of the earth. So that when we do get behind enemy lines, when we do go to difficult places, when we do take on gospel shrapnel, when we do experience sorrow as a family, we already have the training necessary to withstand and to persevere. See, Jesus has given us everything in the gospel that we need to make it through this life. Jesus has given us everything we need in his word to know how to respond in the difficult situations that we all are facing as his disciples. So we are to be doers of the word, James says. Every disciple is intended to be trained up and sent out to multiply. Every disciple. All of us have that same call on our life. That we are to come and what is whispered from the pulpit is to be proclaimed from the housetops in our community. What is told in the, what is preached in the darkness of this sanctuary is to be taken out into the light of day in our community and school and preached in the light. We're to take the word and we're to sow it into the hearts of others as it has been sown into our heart. What are you doing with the word? What are you doing with the word? Do you delight in it? Do you love it? Is it taking root in your heart? Is it filling your heart with worship and passion and desire? Is it training you to live faithfully in your community and in your home for God's glory? So as Jesus begins to move on, he moves from this, this big picture of, so don't be afraid. And as he kind of works his way through his words to his disciples, as he's teaching his disciples, he moves into, and this is why. These are reasons in why you should not be afraid. Look again with me. We'll look in verse 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the, body, both the soul and the body in hell. So the first reason that Jesus gives us and why we should not be afraid, see, he's saying here, fear God and you have nothing else to fear. Fear God and you have nothing else to fear. 
Jesus seems to be coming at this in verse 28 almost from a perspective of logic. He seems to be framing it up to his disciples like this. Like, if you find yourself living in a spirit of fear, if you find yourself living uh, afraid of what people think, if you find yourself afraid of that other people are disproving of the way that you're living and disproving of the lifestyle that you have chosen and disproving of the way that you're raising your children, if you find the way other people are, 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 are you're always concerned about that, then you're irrational and illogical as a child of God. You see, who are we as the children of God? We are those people who, first of all, understand how small men are. We are those who understand how minute and finite human beings are. We are those who understand that that human beings are not in control of anything that happens here. They're not even in control of their own souls. They can't make themselves right. They can't make themselves godly. They, They are dead in their trespasses, unable to awaken themselves to life. We are those who not only understand how small people are, we understand how big God is. We understand that God is seated on a throne, not pacing in heaven afraid of what will happen. That God allows, knows everything that will take place. He knows every sparrow that's in the air. He knows every uh, hair on your head. He knows everything about everything that will ever happen, ever has happened, ever could happen. We understand that we, our only hope is if the God of heaven hears our cry and saves us and redeems us and sets us free. We understand that there's not a natural disaster, there's not a hard day in our life, there's not a good day in our life, there is nothing that is beyond the good and gracious will of God. As Christians, these are the things that we affirm. As Christians, these are the things that we believe. We believe that no man tells God what to do. We believe that God is so sovereign and so good that he can even take the threats of man and use them for our good. That he can take even our own death and use it as a reward for us. How foolish is it that we would be afraid of them? How foolish is it that we would be afraid of them? This is what Jesus says. He says... Don't worry about the threats of man. Man, yeah, they can kill you. Yeah, yeah, they can, they can hurt you right here in this mist-like life. Yeah, they, they can do some damage now, but that's all they can do. That's all they can do. They, the reach of their power is, is, stops there. What about God? Fear the Lord. Fear God on heaven who has control not just over the body but over the soul. Not just over the temporary but the eternal. See, that's what separates the threats of man and the judgment of God. Men can threaten you only in the here and now. The worst thing that a man can do to you is kill you. That's the worst threat that he's got hanging over your head. They have no reign. They have no power. They have no influence. God. God reigns over all of those things. God's God's judgment doesn't reign in the the temporal world. It reigns forever. It's in the eternal world. You see, the issue here is lordship. It's the issue of lordship. You may not even realize that, but the issue here when it comes to fear is an issue of lordship. Who is it that you make your decisions to please? Who is it that you live your life seeking their approval? Who is it that determines the the prism through which you see the world? Are you parenting your children so that everybody else thinks you're normal? 
Or are you parenting your children so that, they are, so that you might seek the approval of God and God alone? You see, when we make decisions based on fear of what people think, and we make decisions based on, uh, on the fear of what people can do to us, and we don't go to the mission field because we're afraid, and we don't let our children do this because we're afraid, and we buy the, 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 the right clothes because we're afraid of what our children will endure if they don't wear them, we go, to the, we go and play ball 12 months of the year because we're afraid of what our children will have and what other, people, other people's children will get a leg up on our children if they don't have those things. When we live in this kind of fear, we are living as slaves. We are living as slaves seeking the approval of 7 billion idols that live across the globe. And y'all, it's exhausting, isn't it? Isn't it exhausting when you need the approval of other people? Everybody's got a different opinion. Everybody's got a different thought on what you should do and on how you should do it. Everybody believes something different. It's exhausting, and it compromises God's lordship in your life. You're giving other people the reign over your life, the throne in your life that only God is worthy of. You see, there is freedom in fearing God. There is freedom in fearing God and God only. You're not trying to please seven billion, you're trying to please one. You don't have to wonder what the standard is. He's given you the standard, there's freedom. You don't have to shoot in the dark, you don't have to live in confusion. He's brought clarity into your life. It's abnormal, it's different, it's a narrow path, few people are on it. But it's a life, not a fear, but a freedom, a life in which you say, I don't care about the approval of man. I'm not worried about their threats. I only want the approval of God and God alone. Brothers and sisters, I want to set you free this morning. I'm desperate to set some of you moms free that are so afraid of what the other moms think about you. I'm desperate to set some of you free who are afraid to go to the mission field because what could happen there. I want to set you free for those of you that want to share the gospel, but you don't share the gospel because you, you fear what people are going to think about you at work. Be free. Their opinions don't matter. It's the approval of God and God alone that you are seeking. Be free in Christ. Be free in Christ. The worst threat that they have, God says, is a reward. That even if you die, it's gain, brothers and sisters. What can they do? What can they do? So he says, fear God, and you have nothing else to fear. Next, he says, trust in the goodness of God, and you won't have to worry about the badness of the world. Trust in the goodness of God, and you don't have to worry about the badness of the world. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 29. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are, not, you are of more value than many sparrows. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, do you not know how much God loves you? God is not just in control. God is not just reigning over the body. God is not just reigning over the soul. God is good in doing it. God is gracious in doing it. God is loving in doing it. And he's got you. You see, a sparrow in Jesus' day was the cheapest thing that you could buy at the market. It was a, it was a delicacy. You, you, they would eat the sparrows, but you could buy them literally for one small copper coin. 
God did not pay a one copper coin for you. You were not the cheapest item at the market. You cost him the precious, expensive blood of his son. He loves you. He tells us that not one hair will fall from your head that God is not aware of. And for some of you, that's a high count. But God knows. Because God cares about the details of your life. God cares about what's happening to you. God knows the smallest, most minute thing about you. He knows all of it. Have you ever tried to count hair? Not real easy to do. And God knows them all. But not only that, think about what he says in verse 27. In verse 27, you can, or 28, I'm sorry. No, not 28. Hold on. 29, I'm sorry. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from whom? Your father. Circle your there. Your father. This is not the father of the sparrows we're talking about. This is not the father of the world that we're talking about. We're talking about your father. Your father in heaven. He loves you. You are his. He has come for you. He has adopted you into his household. Your father is in control of all of this. Your, control, your father reigns over body and soul. Your father reigns over heaven and earth. Your father sits on the throne. Who do you have to fear? Turn with me to Romans 8. So you can get this. Romans 8 is at the front of the epistles. It's turned just to the right. Right before you get to 1 and 2 Corinthians. Let's get excited about this this morning, church. Let's get excited. This is your father. Let's begin in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding, indeed interceding for us. It gets better. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your father, church. Your father. We're in a spiritual war. But we don't go into this war as conquerors. We go into this world as more than conquerors, as the children of God. You find yourselves in moments of fear. You find yourselves in moments in which you fear the approval of man. Your heart is racing with insecurity. Preach to yourself, he is my father. He is my father. Cry out to him, you are my father. You are reigning over this. I can trust you. You see, to be fearful is a fundamental mistrust of God's goodness. Do you realize that? To live a life filled with fear 
means that you live a life filled with mistrust of God. Do you not believe that God is in control? Do you not believe that not even a sparrow can fall out of the air that he doesn't know about? Not even a hair can fall out of your head that he's not aware of? Do you believe that he would save you and redeem you and not care for you? Do you believe that there is anything that could pry you out of his sovereign grip? No. He's your father. He's your father. So for all of us that have weak spirits, for all of us who tend toward fearfulness, for all of us who live afraid of what's in the world and afraid of what can come of the world and afraid of what will come of our families, let us remember that we must trust God. We can't do anything about tomorrow. We can't do anything to keep our children safe always. All we can do is entrust them into the hands of God. That's why we go to the mission field and don't worry about the repercussions. That's why we live radically in this life and don't worry about the repercussions. Because we understand that because of the sovereign God of the universe, until his purposes are finished with us, we are invincible anyway. And when they take us out, if it's on the mission field, if it's 98 years old of a, of a slow heart attack, whatever it is, it's going to be a game for us. So he says, fear God and you'll have nothing else to fear. Trust in the goodness of God and you don't have to worry about the badness of the world. But Then he gives us the severest of the encouragements. When he says, claim Christ publicly and Christ will claim you eternally. Claim Christ publicly, and Christ will claim you eternally. These are some of the most difficult and damning words in all of the scriptures. In verse 32, it says, So everyone who acknowledged me before men, I also will acknowledge me acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Mark, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus phrases the same thing in saying, for those, of, those who are ashamed of me on earth, I will be ashamed of before my Father in heaven. We live in a world filled with cultural Christianity that never wants to do anything. We live in a community filled with cultural Christianity that wants to be Christian behind closed doors, that wants to be Christian on Sunday as long as it doesn't ruffle anybody's feathers the rest of the time. We live in a place in which we... All, act as though we are utterly ashamed to be identified as Christians who are following after Jesus. Consider what that means, brothers and sisters. We've already said that if you live in fear, you deny God's lordship over your life, giving that lordship to seven billion idols that are around us. If you live in fear, not only do you deny God's lordship, you deny God's goodness, saying that you, he can't be trusted. And if you deny God's lordship and you deny God's goodness, you are not a Christian. You do not walk with the Lord. You do not know the Lord. You are not a child of the Lord. So I'm asking you to search your soul right now. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Eyeball to eyeball. Are you ashamed of Jesus? When the subject comes up at lunch, do you look for a table to duck under? When the opportunity arises for you to take a stand, do you look for a place to cower? When people ask hard questions, do you look for any way out of that conversation? When it's the opportunity to share the gospel, do you find yourself hoping that there will be an escape? 
Could it be that you are living a life that is ashamed of Jesus? Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me now, I'll be ashamed of you later. Damning words, hard words, true words. But I believe that this last command is not just intended to be soul-searching, it's intended to be soul-encouraging. Because what does he say first? He says, if you do claim me, though, I'll claim you. I'll claim you. I'll claim you as my child. I'll claim you as my church. I'll claim you as my bride. Imagine with me one day. You've, you've taken on gospel shrapnel. You've got the scars to prove it. You've been betrayed by people that you loved. You've, been, you've, you've went through the ringer. You've, you've went through the brokenness of life. You've got bruises. You've, got, you've had disease. You've, had, you've lost people that you love. All kinds of difficulties have come. But the life has, this life has ended and you are standing, perhaps bowing at the judgment seat of Christ. Imagine that as you're, you're bowing there before your Lord that a big book, the thickest book you've ever seen comes. And it's the, the book of your sin. And the book is, is handed to Jesus and you, you begin to tremble knowing what's written in the book. You cannot even come close to overcoming what's written in the book you can do nothing about. And you're fearful knowing that you, you, you certainly will be, will be damned forever, separated from God in hell. And as, as, as they go to hand Jesus the book, Jesus looks down at you. And he looks up at the Father on the throne. And he says, no, I claim him. I claim him. He is mine. Put that book away. He is written in my book. His book of it, the book of his sin has been pardoned. It has been set free. And before God Almighty, he is clean. He is right. We can live that way, brothers and sisters. We can live knowing that forever has been secured. We can fear God now so that we might enjoy God forever. Brothers and sisters, this comes down to whether or not you believe death is a consequence or a reward this morning. All of this boils down to that. The way that you parent, the way that you live, the places that you go, the things that you do, all come down to whether or not you believe death is a reward or a consequence. Let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would mobilize warriors here. I pray that you would mobilize us to press deeper and deeper and deeper into enemy territory for your glory.